the way I like to think about go-to-market strategy in really basic terms is imagine you've baked this amazing cake, which is your product. But now you need to decide who gets the first slice, how you'll serve it, how much will you charge for each piece? Welcome back to our bite-sized 40-minute mentor startup spotlight series. In today's episode, we're taking a deep dive into a crucial part of any successful startup, a robust go-to-market strategy. To help us dive into the ins and outs of what makes a successful go-to-market strategy, we're joined by a great friend of mine and JBM's, Tarun Gidumal. Tarun has an enviable CV working with some of Europe's most notable tech scale-ups, including NextJump, where he led its international expansion to reach £3 billion worth of GMV, and most recently at Anchorstore, where as UK GM, he established its footprint in the UK as it became one of Europe's fastest growing tech unicorns. Aside from scaling businesses, Tarun is deeply passionate about scaling culture and helping people achieve their full potential. He's subsequently trained a wide array of leaders on this topic, spanning 1,400 companies and startups to government intelligence agencies like MI5 and MI6. So without further ado, it's time to hand over to Tarun. So I grew up in West London. My parents ran a literal mom and pop fashion wholesale business in Whitechapel. So a lot of my weekends were spent at their business in East London. And unfortunately, I lost both of my parents through illness early on. So by the time I was 12, I'd lost my father and my mother. And my life, as I had known it, was uprooted. And I moved to Dubai to live with my grandparents and my uncle. I was very fortunate because I had so much family that wanted to and did step in to raise me. And I guess my upbringing shaped me for better and for worse, right? It taught me resilience. It taught me to look after myself. It gave me a single-mindedness. And ultimately, it taught me that I can overcome any setback and that you grow most through challenge. But also, having lots of family who stepped in really did instill the importance of community, of family, and the importance of having each other's backs, particularly when times are hard. So I started my career at a company called NextJump. Our core product was Perks at Work. And for much of my time there, I was there for over 10 years, I spent running our UK business and helping us scale globally. Um, we were actually headquartered in New York. So I ran the business outside of America. And we went through a phenomenal journey. We grew from early stages to a $3 billion marketplace in a period of about five to seven years. And I think one of the most notable things about that journey was that we did it without raising money and without growing our headcount significantly. So that really taught me a lot about how to scale business, but in a sustainable, responsible way. I then decided to join Anchor Store, which is a team founded in France. They got immense traction early on. I think they went from zero to two billion in two years. And my role there was to establish their UK presence from a go-to-market perspective. The way I like to think about go-to-market strategy in really basic terms, is imagine you've baked this amazing cake, which is your product. But now you need to decide who gets the first slice, how you'll serve it, how much will you charge for each piece. That's go-to-market strategy in a nutshell. It involves pretty much everybody in the organization, sales, marketing, product. And ultimately, it's what makes your product or your idea a viable business. So when creating a go-to-market strategy, I think there are four key questions to answer. So number one, 
who is your customer? And related to that, more importantly, perhaps, who isn't your customer? And that really means having a real clear focus on who you're building for, what are they currently using, what does the competitive landscape look like? And who's not your customer means being willing and able to not focus effort and resource on them. It's almost like doing a public speech or speaking to an audience, and you often ask, know your audience. And it's really putting yourself in their shoes, telling what you're saying in a way that resonates most strongly. So really having a crystal clear view of who your customer is, is step one. Number two is what are their needs? So what are the real pain points that your customer is facing? Can you make them feel, ah, these guys, they really get it. They get my problem. And almost describe it in a nuance that they can't quite describe themselves. You know, when someone says to you, are you putting words to these feelings I've had that I can't quite describe myself? And that's when you can really get it. It gets more complicated when you're selling to a company because you've got a series of people making a decision and understanding each of their agendas, what matters to them, what metrics are they judged on internally and mapping that out. That's all around the second step of truly understanding your customer's needs. But then the third step is where do these customers hang out? Like, where do I reach them? So when I was at Anchor Store, we were servicing independent retailers, particularly bricks and mortar retailers, like concept stores that said a bit of fashion and a bit of furniture and a bit of artwork. And these are shop owners that would spend hours searching for inspiration on Instagram. They would go around the country to trade shows. They would trust certain influencers or other high-profile retailers they would look at. And so once you understand this and where they, how they operate and where they hang out, it really starts to inform your sales and marketing strategy. And then the fourth part is how much are they willing to pay for this? And I think that part's self-explanatory, but it really is a iterative process, I think, to understand what someone's willing to pay. How do you package it? You know, going back to that cake example, do I give a free coffee with this slice of cake, right? And really experimenting on pricing to get that ironed up. The mantra that I have always lived by in terms of go-to-market strategy has been from Airbnb, who said that it's much more impactful to get 100 people to love you than to get 1,000 people to like you. And I think that's true, particularly early on, where large markets have real high competition. And if you look back at time, almost all successful tech companies have started with the premise of getting a small group of people to love you before expanding too quickly. So Facebook started with Harvard, Amazon started with books, eBay started with Pez dispensers and Beanie Babies, Airbnb focused on New York once they left from San Francisco. And so really thinking about expanding on a small group of users that are really loyal and really passionate and get them to love you. And then it's much easier to expand on from there. And you can constrain that in a number of different ways, right? So it could be a specific user segment. It could be a location. It can be a vertical. And that's really informed how I think about go-to-market strategy. You know, early on when I was at NextJump, we realized we were a perks platform. We sold travel. We sold groceries. We sold everything on this marketplace. And we realized that our most loyal users loved cinema tickets. They just loved it. So we thought about how do we create a cinema ticket experience that would really resonate with them. So they're buying cinema tickets. They're often in the queue for the cinema. So we could create a really great mobile experience was really important. You know, we could add on popcorn vouchers and kids tickets. And we really focused on these loyal group of users that love cinema. And that became so successful that that just grew and grew. And I think by the time I left, we were selling almost 6% of all cinema tickets sold in the UK was through Perks at Work. So this mantra of getting 100 people to love you 
instead of a thousand people are like you has really been influential on how I think about go-to-market strategy. So the first mistake that I've made is a phrase called be ready to kill your darlings. And that's actually taken from book writing. And the idea is that if you write a book, you put all of this thought and effort into a specific character, but sometimes that character doesn't work, but you feel too committed to that character to let them go. And I've definitely done that before in go-to-market strategy where you have a really good or you think to be a good idea and you have a lot of conviction in that idea, but you're willing to kill it early if it's not working, right? And sometimes when I haven't, we end up wasting time and resource and money on the wrong thing. So that, I think that's one thing, be ready to kill your darlings. The second thing and lesson I've learned is copying and pasting doesn't always work. So when I was at Anchor Store, we had a playbook that worked in France. But just copying and pasting and translating that over to the UK didn't work. The UK had its own nuances. There was Brexit. We had more online retailers in the UK than continental Europe. There were all these nuances that we really needed to understand and iterate on to make our go-to-market work. So it's not a one-size-fits-all strategy. And the third thing I would say is don't try and be everything to everyone. So what I was saying earlier, that being really hyper-focused on a specific group of customers has been really important. And some customers can actually be bad customers. So they might generate top-line revenue, but are not super profitable. And also just servicing those customers can dilute your focus for you and your team. So I think those three principles have really been mistakes I've made and I think are really important to understand for go-to-market strategy. The way I think about go-to-market strategy and any form of strategy, actually, is almost like a science experiment where what you're saying is that you're saying, oh, I think these are my customers. I think this is who my product will resonate with. I think that this is what they're willing to pay. But it's a hypothesis, right? And the way that I think approaching it through a series of small experiments to validate or invalidate those hypotheses as quickly as you can is a way to think about it. And so thinking about it through the lens of a science experiment means you can learn much more quickly and not go down a route that where you're six months down the line and you realize, oh, actually, that, that didn't quite work. So the quicker you can validate and invalidate, the better. So getting buy-in from go-to-market strategy is no different, in my view, to getting buy-in from any form of strategy. And there are a few things to that. So one, is it a collaborative process or is it a, does it feel like a top-down agenda? I think getting a team bought into something means as a leader, you don't need to share the solution, but you can start from a point of sharing the problems so that everybody feels like they've played a role in creating the strategy and feel more bought in. It also takes humility to recognize that you might not have all the solutions. Everybody has a piece of the problem. If you share the problem, everyone might have a different approach. There might be some gold in there and there will be some gold in there you can use to inform your strategy. So Treating strategy as a collaborative process is, is number one. Number two is opening yourself up to feedback. So at every company I've been at, one of the things we do is once we share strategy with the team, let's say it's an hour meeting and she's sharing some strategy, 10 minutes before the meeting is due to end, we stop and everybody can give feedback to me or any leader who's presenting strategy about what they think about the strategy. And that feedback is done in silence, it's done virtually, it's done anonymously. And that's important because, because you're trying to get the truth. You want people to say what they're really thinking 
And it's recognizing that each team member might have a piece of the puzzle. You know, customer service rep might be thinking, oh, if we launch like that, it might trigger this consumer and something we might not have considered. So opening yourself up to feedback is really important as well. And lastly, I think one of the things I've had to recognize on, on buy-in is that sometimes you might not get 100% of people on board because you're hiring probably diversity of thought. And not having 100% buy-in is okay sometimes. Particularly if it's new or if it's bold, there will be skeptics. Jeff Bezos, Amazon always used to say that a phrase of disagree and commit. And that's something that has always rung true for me as well, which is to say that sometimes we disagree and that's okay, but let's commit. Let's see if we can make it work. And if not, we'll change course. When fostering great culture, I think there are a few questions that can be a good litmus test for the strength of culture. So one question, how often do you hear, that's not my job? Second question is, how much finger pointing is there at other teams when performance isn't going well? Third question, how often is the same mistake made twice? Fourth question, how are goals achieved? Fifth question, how are decisions made? I think with those five questions, you can get a real sense of the strength of an organization's culture. And for me, it boils down to two main things. One is ownership mentality. So what I mean by that is let's imagine you are owning a house versus renting a house. If you're renting a house and something goes wrong, you think, oh, well, that's kind of the landlord's problem. I'm going to move out of here anyway soon. So it's not really my responsibility to fix that, you know, kind of less fussed. If you're owning a house, it's you treat it as your problem. You're acting with urgency to get it fixed, right? And the more of that you can instill into an organization, I think the better. And the second thing is transparency. And what transparency means to me is how are decisions made, both top-down, being transparent with the team on what decisions will be made and why. Do they have full context of the company strategy and what other teams are doing? But also bottoms up, is there a sense of transparency where people feel safe enough to voice their opinion, to say when they disagree? And I think transparency is the second hallmark to great culture. So yeah, looking at things from a cultural perspective, I think ownership mentality and transparency, if those are functioning, then your ability to execute strategy is much higher in my view. Probably the most impactful piece of advice I got early on in my career was someone said to me, Tarun, you need to grow where you're planted. And what that meant was, I was always doing a customer services job at the time, just straight out of university. And I wanted to move on into other roles. I wanted to join the sales team. I wanted to have more responsibility. And they said, grow where you're planted. And what that meant was that whatever job you're doing, if you can really excel in that role, you'll go far particularly in a startup and a scale-up, because things are moving really quickly. What that piece of advice did for me was it forced me to start thinking like a CEO. So when I was doing that customer services job, how would the CEO view this role? If the things I'm doing today, do I need to be doing them? Are they actually most impactful for the company? Is there other things I should be doing that I could put in place that would save other people time or save the company money? It just forced me to think about things in a different way. And once I started to do that, I think it led other people to believe, oh, well, Turin can do it on this role. Maybe we'll start to give him more responsibility. And that attitude and that advice was really impactful for me. And certainly I would encourage 
people early on in their careers to think about too. In fact, even when I hire people now, I'll often look at how they do the kind of perceived small tasks. So there's a story of, um, I remember we hired someone and she was in sales a fair while ago now. And we were hosting an event and we needed people to chip in to just help running the event. And one of the roles we needed people, someone to do was to order breakfast at the event. So fairly low level task. A lot of people might think about that task and think, oh, that's kind of below my pay grade. You know, I wasn't born in to order breakfast. Like that's kind of not my job. The woman we hired, she did such an amazing job at breakfast to the point where all the attendees were like, who'd been to our previous events, were like, this breakfast is a massive upgrade <laughs> to what you've done previously. And from our perspective, it was done at much lower cost, right? So it was like noticeably a higher standard. And what that led me to believe with her was that, wow, she can apply such high standards on this role. Why don't we give her more responsibility? I think that in startups, you get more exposure in startups. It's a reason people move into startups or one of the main reasons. The opportunity for growth is higher. But treating every job as an opportunity for growth, an opportunity to prove your worth, I think can get you really far. I think one of the things for burning out is thinking of it through the analogy of working out, right? You put your body under stress, but then you need to recover. And if you're not recovering well enough, then you're going to burn out, right? And you're not going to see results. So I think in balancing stress and recovery, and recovery means different things for different people. For me, it means going to the gym. It means spending time with my family and my friends. I think so. just balancing rest and recovery is really important. But two, things are very intense at startups, or they can be very intense at startups and scale-ups. And the reality is you're probably going to spend more time working where you work than anywhere else. And so for me, I've always been very selective about the companies I join and thinking it, I'm joining a cause, not just a company. And that gives me motivation intrinsically in, in what I do, but also choosing the environment. So who am I going to be working with? What are the people like? What's the culture like? And I think those are two really important decisions for thinking about burnout, because if you feel really motivated by where you work and what you're doing, and you're around people who you want to be around, then it makes it much easier to manage with the hard times. My advice for anyone who feels overwhelmed is to find a work spouse. And what I mean by that is when I was at Next Jump, I co-ran the business with someone called Kevin. And Kevin is completely different to me. He sees the world differently. We have different strengths. We have different weaknesses. We challenged each other. We gave each other a fresh perspective. And he was my work spouse. <laughs> like our, our respective wives call Kevin and I our work husband and wife. <laughs> and the reason is because leadership is lonely and decision-making is hard. And so having somebody who you can navigate difficult decisions with at work has been really impactful for me. And I've always tried to find that with who I work with, someone that I can open up to and they can open up to me and we can navigate ambiguity together makes it feel slightly less alone.
That's all from us today, but please make sure you follow the links in the show notes to learn more about today's 40 Minute Mentor. And if you have any recommendations for future guests, why don't you drop our head of marketing and 40 Minute Mentor producer Hannah a line on hannah at jbmc.co.uk. She would love to hear from you. Thank you again for your ongoing support and I'll see you again next week for more pocket-sized mentorship. Mm -hmm.